Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. Today, it's all about cars and music as we take you to the floor of the North American International Auto Show in Detroit. Then we'll drive north on I-96 to talk to one of my oldest friends, a Grammy-winning musician from Lansing, Michigan. Our last stop will be the R.E. Olds Museum, where we'll discover Lansing's rich automobile history. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick, and along with my husband, Ian, we're going to share some of Michigan's rich past and present treasures. Thanks, dear. Detroit has hosted an annual auto show since 1907, and for decades the show has had a regional focus on car manufacturers. However, in the 1980s, it took a London cabbie asking why Detroit didn't include cars from around the world before organizers considered a broader focus. In 1987, the North American International Auto Show debuted. Today, Bob Schumann, chairman of the 2014 International Auto Show, joins World Footprints to talk about the latest innovations in automobile design and what visitors can expect to see. Hey, something's changed in Detroit. And, and that's where it got going to where now what we are is a, is a media-driven show. We have over 5,000 members of the press come for our two-day press conference, over 67 countries represented. We'll travel north on I-96 where we'll be joined by one of Tanya's oldest friends, Grammy-winning musician John Fluker, who joins us on the phone from Los Angeles. John has performed with an extensive list of acclaimed artists, including Gladys Knight, Queen Latifah, and Boys to Men. With all his success, John still embraces his Midwest roots. Wonderful upbringing as far as um, just nice town to raise a family and the musical programs that were available. Because I even went to a musical program um, one summer at Michigan State, and um, it was I had so much fun. It was just a great program to meet other musicians and to learn. One of the finest automobile collections anywhere is found in Lansing, Michigan. The R.E. Olds Transportation Museum in downtown Lansing honors Ransom Eli Olds, a man who reshaped the auto industry in Lansing's skyline. Bill Adcock, the museum's executive director, takes us on a tour of the museum and shares some of the history of R.E. Olds and his namesake car company, Oldsmobile once built in Lansing. Ransom hated horses. He thought there was must be a better way to get around than a horse, to clean up after a horse, and a feed a horse, and a groom a horse, and thought that uh, that a steam-powered or some type of a powered vehicle would, would, would be a lot better than a horse. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Every January, Detroit, Michigan takes center stage with the North American International Auto Show, the greatest indoor media event on earth. Car manufacturers from all over the world come to the D to show off their latest designs and thousands of visitors and media descend upon the city to see automotive artistry up close and personal. But the North American International Auto Show also has a strong socially conscious purpose 
and they used the spotlight of this event to raise money for charity. Bob Schumann is the chairman of the 2014 North American International Auto Show. He is the past president of the Detroit Auto Dealers Association and serves on several other auto industry boards. He is a patron of the arts and, like Ian and I, also a recovering attorney. And, a, and a, an alumnus of both of our alma maters, Michigan and Michigan State. But at the end of the day, Bob says he bleeds green. Bob Schumann, welcome to World Footprints. Well, thank you very much. That's quite an introduction. And as a uh, as a Michigan State alum, I'm so happy that you've uh, kept your alliances uh, in in priority and order. Yeah, but my wife's a Wolverine, so you know I can only do so much. You married well. That's what I tell my wife. <laughs> First of all, congratulations on celebrating 25 years of the North American International Auto Show. This is um, a wonderful, remarkable benchmark, and it seems like you've drawn in the big guys. This year, with a visit from Vice President Joe Biden, Cheryl Crow, I understand, is performing or uh, has performed at the uh, charity uh, preview. Right. You know, the the idea for an international show started with a comment a London cab driver said to what, a former dealer way back when, that, why doesn't why Detroit have an international show? And that's where the question was first asked. And look where we are 25 years later, Cheryl Crow, uh, Vice President Biden. And here I was, a guy from, from Wald Lake, Michigan, which, you, you know, is now grown up now. But when I was a kid, that was kind of like nowhere was the joke. And, and, and here I am guiding uh, Vice President Biden around the show floor, meeting with, you know, Sergio Marchione and Bill Ford Jr. and and, and the, the brand new uh, Mary uh, Abara. Uh, that's not the folks that I usually talk to. So that was quite an experience for 45 minutes to uh, to be able to see the vice president like that. Sure, and and you know, I mean, considering where the international auto show um, started, you know, in 1907, I believe, as a Detroit auto show, just to see how it's morphed through the years and you know incorporated. Um, the international community, that that's quite an accomplishment. Right. You know, to go from what was essentially a regional show, where it was, you know, before GM and Chrysler back in the day, and now, you know, the international idea is, hey, everybody gets a level playing field so we can get the German manufacturers here, the Asian manufacturers here, and it's a it's a fair deal for who gets what space. It's based on a formula, and uh, you know, with everybody gets some input as to what the floor plan is, and we try to make everybody play fair with each other. You know, you know, we're all fierce competitors. I compete with the Chevy dealers and the Ford dealers, and, and these massive companies certainly compete with each other, and and everybody wants their display to be a little bit better than the next guy's display. Which for the general public that comes to the show, they get to see the best that all worldwide manufacturers have to offer in terms of auto show. You can't see this anyplace else in the country. Now, Bob, one of the things that really brought about this transformation in the auto show is this global competition as uh, Frankfurt, Tokyo, and even Chicago were beginning to eclipse the spotlight in terms of vehicle introductions and, and so forth. Take us back to that time when uh, Detroit, uh, the auto dealers really said, hey, we've got to do something different because we are losing our position out out there amongst these great shows. Absolutely. And, and what we were missing was we were missing that, that foreign press, the, the, the import press. So what we, they did was and they, they started knocking on doors. And not every, not every door opened, but a few doors opened, and primarily at Toyota, 
and at Nissan with the introduction of the Lexus and Infiniti brands. I mean, remember when before there was Lexus? It's hard to think back that far because they've been so darn successful. But Lexus and Infiniti, Toyota and Nissan, committed to bringing those brands. They were revealed for the first time anywhere at the show. And that's really what got the ball rolling. And then all the other, uh, you know, the German manufacturers started to see, hey, something's changed in Detroit. And, and that's where it got going to where now what we are is a, is a media-driven show. We have over 5,000 members of the press come for our two-day press conference, over 67 countries represented. Um, people fly in from, obviously, all over the world, and because they know they're going to get, see, this year, 50 to 55 worldwide reveals. They're going to see the chief executive officers of, of, of most of these manufacturers all come to Detroit. I mean, you know, GM, Ford, and Chrysler are here already, uh, but, but, but Dieter Zetcher was here. It just it just goes on and on. So all these, these, these ladies, and, ladies and gentlemen come in now, and it gives the press an opportunity, and each manufacturer gets the most bang for the buck in terms of media attention. Because mm-hmm. at the bottom line is, they spend you know millions of dollars on these displays. There is a return of investment uh, analysis that is done. Did they get the press to justify the expense? And each year, the answer has been a resounding yes. The show has grown, and so has the media coverage. I can remember being in Michigan in the 80s and 90s and looking forward to uh, watching Channel 4 locally to uh, take the tour of the show. And now, living in Washington, D.C., we see that the show is on NBC, MSNBC. Uh, Just in terms of this uh, spotlight on this show, this is a remarkable transformation in where this show has come. It is, and our our media numbers are, are, are just off the chart this year in terms of the buzz that's going on all over the internet uh, about the show. And, and you know, I think another thing that's happened is sometimes um, one car will steal the show, and that's what somehow gets talked about. It's been different this year in that, you know, you've, you've got the, the Ford pickup with, with a lot of aluminum in it. You've got the Chrysler 200. You've got General Motors winning, you know, uh, the, the car and truck of the year with the uh, the, the truck, the, the Chevy uh, Silverado and, and the Stingray. Um, you, you've got great product, and, and that's not you know, BMW had introduced great projects. Toyota's got this FT1 concept that if they ever build it, I have to say this quietly because I'm a Chrysler dealer, I'd think about buying one. Um, <laughs> we've got great product all over the floor. There isn't one car stealing the show this year. There's just a lot to see, and it's a very, very competitive market. Mm-hmm. Although I'll tell you, in, in, in our market, in the D.C. market, we have heard a lot about the Ford F-150, um, but uh, but we're looking forward to, to seeing it. And one one of the things that I find most remarkable is, you know, we, we've, we're just coming out of a recession. Uh, we've been in this place for quite some time. And despite the economy, the auto show seems to get better and better every single year. How do you continue to raise the bar and raise also an incredible amount of money for uh, charities? Well, I think that's kind of a two-sided question. So let's, let's go at how do we get better every year? Really, one of the forces that drives the the, the success this year that I, I, I'd love to say I have some control over, but I don't. When we start talking about selling 16 million cars and trucks in this country, uh, the auto manufacturers have to step up and they have to start running now. They can't wait till June. They need to sell a lot of cars in January and February uh, each month. And so the battle begins, you know, here in Detroit. 
who's got the best product, um, which translates into bigger displays and, and, and everything that you get to see here. The, the, the other side, you know, Charity Preview, biggest one-night charitable event in, in North America. Uh, we exceeded $4 million this year. Last year, we were at $3.9 million for the, the various charities that participate here in the Detroit area. They're all children's-based uh, charities. Do a lot of good work. In the in the 20-some uh, years that the Charity Preview has been going on, we've raised almost $100 million for charity. Uh, it's a big event. Um, one of the reasons that we've done, we're, we've done so well this year is I'm bringing my entire family. I, I had to buy them all tickets at $350 uh, each, but uh, it's worth it. Uh, it. It's a great charity. It's, what else are you going to do in Detroit in the middle of January? Um, you, <laughs> right. can't go, you can't go to the beach, so you might as well you know, come on down, put on a tux, and put on a gown. Uh, and it just goes on. And as, you, as you mentioned, we've got Cheryl Crow. Uh, performing, uh, you know, she's going to do a great job, or we has done a great job, I should say. Uh, I've, I've lost track of space and time here. I've been running around. You know, I'm still recovering from from Vice President Biden. He, he I didn't know he was a car guy. His dad was a used car dealer, so he can really talk cars. Very interesting. But um, you, you know, it, it's just. Uh, we, we, and the other thing is, we had a big afterglow party, uh, we, which we called Studio 25. We hadn't done that before to try and keep people. You know, in the past, everyone runs off to various events all over the city, or they run off to a restaurant, but now we're working on keeping them here, so we've had 2,000 people at this giant bash with a couple of different bands and, and, you know, and drinks and food. Uh, and and you know another expensive ticket that people uh, all wanted to you know it's one of the, another one of the hottest tickets in Detroit right now. Mm-hmm. You know uh, you mentioned uh, Vice President Biden and uh, we have the opportunity to to travel uh, sometimes with members of the administration with the President and First Lady and 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 uh, Jim Biden and we you know we, he's very. Um, he's very animated. I mean, he's a you know great, great personality, and and so, and the Obama administration has been very supportive of the automotive industry, and so I'm wondering what some of his responses were, um, or his reaction to uh, the floor as you as you showed him around oh, today. Well, he said he said, he turned to me and he said I was on his hip the whole time, and he turned to me and said he said Bob, I, it's, I feel like a kid in a candy shop. <laughs> he loves cars. I, I I don't know the man. All I, I know is what I read in the papers, but uh, this is the guy. I We have an expression, when you can talk cars, you're a car guy, and, and, and car guys know who car guys are, and he is definitely a car guy, And because uh, he can talk to us. He told us about the car his father had given him and how he had it restored, and how the, this is one thing, I, I, I'm now, you know, any presidential aspirations I had are, are now ended, um, because you can't drive, I guess, if you're president or vice president. So he talked about, you know, how disappointing it is. You think service won't let him drive anywhere. Um, so uh, I guess that's, uh, it, it's not all uh, fun and games, I guess, when you're your vice president, but uh, no, he had a blast. And of course, you know, the, we've got the CEOs of all the automakers that uh, came out to see him, and it was an unannounced visit to the show floor, so it was open to the public. So he was shaking hands with people who uh, just came down to see the show and had no idea they were going to be shaking hands with the vice president. So it was really uh, a, a wonderful thing, whatever side of the political aisle a uh, you know, person happens to be on. Mm-hmm. He said hi to everybody, and it was just a blast. This show has a tremendous economic impact on Detroit. Detroit and the southeastern Michigan economy, $300 million in economic activity from the show, uh, according to some reports. The center where the show was held, Kobo Center, is undergoing an expansion uh, in large part to accommodate the growing needs of the show. Talk about what's, what's changed at Kobo and how that will enable 
the uh, auto companies to show off their product better in the years to come and just what the show is really doing to uh, boost the fortunes of Detroit. Well, you know, seven, eight years ago, Kobo was in a, in a great state of disrepair. That, that's probably putting it mildly. And and we dealers who, 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 this is one of the few shows in the world that's owned by the dealers. The dealers put the show on. Uh, we're talking to the city and talking to the state officials and saying, look, if we're going to have a world-class auto show, we're going to be, you know, right up there with the number one, two, three shows in the world. We have to find a way to get a world-class facility and uh, you know politicians are politicians how do you it takes a while to find that way and and they created this regional authority and uh, you know whatever that means um but it's work and and the five-member board who have to agree on everything I mean, it's, it's it's not just a majority rule all five have to say yes before anything happens um we now have a world-class facility when i when they recruited me to do my job as chairman you start five six years ago you know you start out as secretary and your treasurer you work your way through the, the various offices um i never thought this would be done. What construction project is ever done on time? I hate to say this, especially in the city of Detroit, but they have exceeded all expectations. The building is absolutely beautiful. We have our riverfront atrium area that uh, open. It's, it's all. Gla- it's a glass wall. It's a glass ceiling. That, that's where Vice President Biden spoke. Looking through the glass wall, you look south across the Detroit River to Windsor, to our Canadian friends. It's beautiful at night. You can see in the summer, you'll see traders going up and down the Detroit River. Next to that, immediately next to that, where the Detroit Pistons used to play basketball back in the day. And, and when I was a kid, they used to advertise at air-conditioned Cobo Arena. Well, it's no longer in arena. It used to be uh, the, you know, the the wrestlers back in the 60s. It was always, uh, come see the Shark Cage death, death match at air-conditioned Cobo Arena. That was always the tagline. I, I use that my, on my kids now. But anyway, <laughs> it was a, they, they, it's no longer an arena. You know, all the seats are gone, so it's now two floors. We've, you can get 3,000 people in the upper, upper level. That's where we're going to have the, where we're going to have, we had our, our beautiful um, uh, Studio 25 uh, after the charity preview bash. Uh, Ford, uh, when the press was here, had a huge uh, blogging, uh, you know, th- that aspect of media uh, display in there. They, they just went over the top in that room. It's a great space. So I think everyone in Detroit who's, who's lived through some of these times that walks into Kobo Kind of, we're, we're a little cynical. You're like, oh, you know, whatever. Yeah, they did something at Kobo. They put another coat of paint on. No, no, no. You walk in here and you go, wow, this really is nice. And that's what we're getting from everybody who comes to the show. Mm, I am so pleased to hear that because I, I remember Kobo back in the day when I'd, you know, come for one event or the other, you know, uh, boxing matches, which were shown on widescreen TV because <laughs> uh, just, at, uh, you know, as a telecast. Um, and uh, and actually, in going through the little section of Kobo and the People Mover, and that's all I've ever seen of the International Auto Show. So this will be um, a wonderful first for for me um, with regards to uh, you know attending for the first time this year and. Uh, next year, I'm hoping that we'll be there for uh, the media events as well. Um, Bob, I was I was really surprised um, to to learn that you know outside of Germany and Japan, more vehicles from those countries are unveiled at the North American International Auto Show, and I think that is um, you know attributable to how the show is perceived outside of this country and and embraced actually outside of this country as well. Absolutely, you know. Uh, uh, Again, one of the perks of being chairman for the last three years, I've traveled to Shanghai, Beijing, Geneva, the Frankfurt Show, the Paris Show, you know, all the big shows. And, and it's funny, again, me as a Detroiter, yeah, I've had a chip 
on my shoulder. I mean, I've been living here. I'm the third generation of Schumann to, to live here. Um, you know, and, 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 and someone, I, I meet someone and they'll say, well, what, what, you know, what are you doing in Geneva? Well, I'm part of the North American International Auto Show. And they're like, really? That's a great show. And it's so wonderful to be from Detroit and hear somebody else say that. Mm-hmm. Um, we really are a big deal. And I tell everyone locally, you know, we got a, we got a great jewel here on the, on the Detroit River and we got to polish it, cherish it, and keep making it better so we stay a few steps ahead of everybody else. Sure. Well, so what is the most exciting concept car or new unveiling that you've ever seen at the auto show? Which one really kind of, you know, excited you? Well, I'd say, you know, last year uh, the Chevrolet Corvette was the car that stole the, the show. And again, it's hard for me to say that since I'm a Chrysler dealer. But now this year, I have to say once again, uh, the, the, the Stingray that won the award this year uh, a lot of people want to see that car, uh, and they have a you know the new Stingray, and they also have a Corvette race car here. Um, you know, Joe Biden and and Mary Barra, the leading General Motors, sat in that car for about ten minutes, and they closed the door. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they talked about in there. I asked her when she came out, you know, well, did you get an order and deposit? Because in our business, you know, that's what you're always asking for. I don't know if she sold them a car or not, but uh, they were talking in there. She was really trying to sell it to them. So God bless her for that. Um, those are the cars that that kind of jump out at you. And and Toyota's got this FT1 uh, concept car that is really cool, kind of grabs you when you walk by. You know, some of the concepts, you can kind of tell whether there's people standing there looking at them or not. And there's a lot of people standing there looking at that uh, Toyota FT1 concept, I think is the right name. Hmm. Now, there's a real push uh, for... uh, New technology in the cars. We're starting to see this with electric vehicles being pushed, and we're now hearing more about cars that will drive themselves that could possibly transform how we think about cars. What are some of the exciting things that you're seeing that will be presented at the show this year in terms of some of the, some of the future technology that we can look forward to? Sure. Well, you're seeing a lot of manufacturers, you know, if the car starts to drift from one lane or the other, the, the steering wheel will shake to let you know, and it'll even bring you back. You know, you've got all the adaptive braking technologies where it's seeing the, the traffic in front of you. Uh, it just goes, you've got the heads-up displays. They're still trying to get that where, you know, you, you can see the display on the on the windshield of the car. And, and there's, all, there's so much talk about the autonomous car, so much talk about that, not so much here uh, on the show floor, you know, the other things that go on at the uh, at the auto show, there are a few suppliers on the floor of, of uh, you know, to the industry, and they've got some very futuristic displays where they're talking about some of the, the uh, technologies they would use to enable the autonomous driving. Uh, so a lot of discussion of it, you know, most mostly right now what you see on the show floor are cars that, um, you know, can park themselves, can back even, or, or find a parking space, Back into a regular a regular parking space or parallel park. Uh, there's there's more and more of that, and you know these those technologies start at the high end, and then as the years go by, work their way down to the mid priced vehicles. So you just see so much of that now. Uh, and the other the the other big talking point is the connectivity, you know, with the with the with the iPhone and, and, and with all the different smartphones that are out there, trying to integrate that uh, into the vehicle. That seems to be a real space race right now to have the best system to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the so-called smart cars, they're calling them, I think. <laughs> right. Um, so, Bob, I'm just curious. I mean, there has to be a ton of planning that goes into uh, this annual <laughs> spectacular. 
when will you start planning for next year? Oh, that would have been like a couple of weeks ago. Oh. <laughs> the, the, current, the current show floor, the, if, if you walk the floor right now and, and could see it where everybody is, that was the 111th uh, edition of the floor plan. So I'm sure they're already on uh, the, of the, for the 2015 show on floor plan edition three or four. Um, it is a, a year-round process. There's a full-time staff of, of 20 to 25 folks that work for the Detroit Auto Dealers. That that's what they do. Is they they're they're constantly planning the next show. You, you have to remember the worldwide show. Uh, they have to work with manufacturers from from everywhere. And and one thing you learn as I've been doing this now five six years is each manufacturer has a very different culture. Some are very buttoned down. You know you know it's this this this, and some are very relaxed and everything in between, and, and, and these folks here with their years of experience know how to talk to each manufacturer. And then, you know, you have a, a certain folks at a manufacturer that have been there many years that kind of know the drill, but then they'll move on or get promoted or retire, and then, you, you know, you have a new person comes in, and they have to kind of learn the ropes and how everything works. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot of different hands involved, a lot of different people. You know, there's so many, uh, you know, just putting the show together, the, the all the various trades and unions that are involved, you know, the, the, they hang, the drywall hangers, the carpenters, the electricians, the steel workers, it goes on and on and on. So many people involved in the show, so much economic activity as a result of the show. Sure. Bob Schumann, the chairman of the 2014 North American International Auto Show in Detroit. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. After the break, we'll talk to one of Tanya's oldest friends, Grammy Award-winning musician John Fluker, a native son of Lansing, Michigan, who has played with a number of acclaimed musicians, including Gladys Knight. Wonderful upbringing as far as um, just nice town to raise a family, and the musical programs that were available. Because I even went to a musical program um, one summer at Michigan State, and um, it was I had so much fun. It was just a great program to meet other musicians and to learn. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, my name is Timothy Kendrick. I'm Grace Kendrick. And we love World Footprints Radio. And I'm a transplant from Michigan here in Vancouver and loving it. We love the radio. Thank you. Are you planning a vacation, a business trip, or a honeymoon abroad? Want to enhance your trip and make a meaningful contribution to the places you visit? Packforapurpose.org can show you how. Before you travel, visit Packforapurpose.org. It's easy to make a big impact. Hi, I'm Nancy from Lansing, Michigan. I'm here in New Orleans, and I enjoy listening to the World Footprints Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. The song you're listening to is a beautiful composition by our next guest, John Fluker, who wrote Asleep Beneath the Moon, which appeared on his first CD, The Sound of Peace. John Fluker is an award-winning pianist, composer, vocalist, and arranger who has performed with an eclectic group of artists from Gladys Knight, Dionne Warwick, and Alita Adams to Boyz II Men, Queen Latifah, and David Hasselhoff. 
John has performed and lent his musical arrangement talents to a number of television shows, theatrical productions, and the Holland American Cruise Line. John hails from Lansing, Michigan. He is my oldest childhood friend, and he's under strict instructions not to share any of my early shenanigans, because this show is about him and not me. John, thank you so much for joining us on World Footprints. You're welcome. Thank you. And so funny you snuck that in. <laughs> I just had to remind you of our agreement. Um, but, uh, you know, I want to tell you I'm so proud of your accomplishments. You're one of the few friends from my early childhood who knew exactly what you wanted to do early in life. And oddly enough, you're both artists, the other one being uh, the gospel singer Byron Cage. Did you ever waver, especially during the hard times, about your, your life choice, your career choice? Well, not actually. Um, I always knew that I wanted to be in music, and of course there were a lot of hurdles to, to jump over. Um, but I always knew that God had a plan for me in this particular area. And so I just kept at it. There were other things like little acting here and there and some other things, but I always knew that the root of my career would be in music. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned at the at the outset, we just listened to one of your songs, Asleep Beneath the Moon, yeah. which appears on your first CD, The Sound of Peace. And this is a CD that I know you dedicated to your dad, um, Curtis. And so I know that CD has a very special meaning for you. Um, but I'll tell you that the song, Asleep Beneath the Moon, really inspired me to slow down, reflect, and breathe. And, you know, bring a sense of peace. And I think that's one of your objectives, really, when sharing your music, is it, is it not? Yes, it is. It's to um, just share peace and also just calm people down. I, I remember how my father used to sit on the couch and listen to me play the piano. And um, he said that I should make a CD because um, my music was so relaxing and soothing. And so I just took that as inspiration mm-hmm. for this project. How, how are you really able to do that, though? Because you are always on the go. Every time we talk, you're on the road, you're in a different state or country. Even, how do you find the ability to write such relaxing uh, tracks when your life is, you know, anything but? (laughs) Well, you know, when I sit down at the piano, it's really just me and inspiration from God. I just shut out everything, and I'm just able to just go to that place where it's just so intimate and just play peacefully. My style has always kind of been, um, you know... Sort of like love ballads or or slow songs, or I, I really excelled, and I'm able to express myself in that type of music, um, where some people say it almost sounds cinematic, like for a movie score or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm, that's just really a part of me, and I just can find that place. It's a very um, safe, easy place to go to for me. So, and it really helps because after all the traveling and everything, you need to be able to be able to just calm down and just be able to just find that place where you can just um, be intimate with God or just find that place of peace within yourself. And so I, I'm able to do that on the piano. 
and it's you know it's a contrast to the gospel singing and and all the other things that I do. But I'm thankful for it, and it's just a part of me as the other parts. John, as an artist, when did you really find your voice and kind of find find uh, your calling with respect to the music you're doing? Well, it was, it's interesting. Um, when I started working with Gladys Knight and um, on a regular basis, because at first I was just a sub, and then one of her keyboard players, Beth, and I became one of a permanent member in her band. So just working with Gladys, she kind of helped me um, to focus on various projects along with her. And just working with her, I was able to um, work on a gospel album. We um, formed a gospel choir, and um, the project was able to win a Grammy. But it's just that finding that there's so much more in me, and she just tapped into it. She saw it even when I, there were times I didn't see it. And I don't want to say she took advantage of it, but she definitely saw it, and she um, helped create um, projects with both of us working together to help bring it out and and to work on various uh, projects. Mm-hmm. Was it was it just fortuitous that you ended up working with another hometown girl or home state girl? How did that happen with Gladys? Well, it, one of my uh, friends, Herman Jackson, he's a, a great pianist. He was playing the piano for Gladys, and um, he got me in the door. So there was no auditions or any of that. I mean, I, they just called me, said, can you do it? I said, yeah, and I was very nervous. And they sent me the music. You go in, and you just have to just just hit it. you got to start playing, and no rehearsal or anything. You know, it's uh, it, it's funny how life is is um, kind of goes around full circle. Um, when we saw you, or when I saw you after decades um, following school in Las Vegas, when you were playing with her, mm-hmm. um, Gladys actually is um, grew up with my aunt, and oh, wow. uh, they they are best friends. They were best friends growing up, and they still. Um, you know, they still maintain contact to this day, and uh, and so I I thought it was you know it was a really interesting, um, oh. <laughs> uh, you know, involvement um, there, and uh, and and it was really you know pleased to to not only see you after so many years, but to to meet her and and uh, and tell her who I was. Um, wow. Small world, huh? Yeah, it is a small world, which is why you always have to be on your best behavior. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I, I'm curious, how did the David Hasselhoff thing come about? <laughs> that just seems so contrary to who you are, who I know you to be <laughs> in your music. Well, you know, that was also through Gladys, too, because David Hasselhoff and Gladys um, were pretty good friends. And he liked her band, and when he saw her in Vegas, he said he was going to be performing on a Tonight Show. So we asked Gladys if he could borrow her band. And so we backed him up on the Tonight Show. And that's how that worked out. Okay. I was laugh when you were talking about the eclectic group I played with and when you mentioned Boys to Men and then you turn around and say David Hasselhoff. I'm like, what? How, where, how, how'd you get to that spot? <laughs> but, 
but he, he was a great he's a great guy and he was fun to work with hmm. john i want to ask you about lansing uh, despite uh, tanya's uh warning at first <laughs> what was life like in lansing and what are some of the memories that you have with uh tanya back back in your hometown well tanya's um you know it's always been a really good friend i remember when tanya moved to detroit and she came back and she knew all the latest dances and <laughs> and i was like where what in the world just happened <laughs> i mean she just came back knowing everything and just you know but um, Lansing, you know, it's you know pretty small. I always kind of felt like Lansing just a little slightly behind, a little slower than all the, um, like a more hip place like Detroit or something. But at the same time, there were a lot of talented people who influenced me. Um, you know, I had you know a lot of talented friends, and I don't know if you remember Natalie Riddle. She, um, mm-hmm. great, great pianist, and and Donnie Hinton, just a great vocalist. Those people like that really inspired me. And Lansing, I was always in the talent shows, and um, and then branched out into acting, and so that's one of the things I look forward to um, in school, being in talent shows, playing in a marching band, the jazz band, singing in a choir, you know, all those things that really influenced my um, musical abilities. Mm-hmm. So I just think about all those things. It, it was just wonderful upbringing as far as um, just nice town to raise a family and the musical programs that were available. Because I even went to a musical program um, one summer at Michigan State. And um, it was I had so much fun. It was just a great program to meet other musicians and to learn, and it really helped me prepare for college. Is it hard sometimes to to go home, and you've been away for so long, you've traveled the world, and and your perspective of the world, I'm sure, has changed. Do do you find it hard to go back home to Lansing, Michigan, which is um, really, you know, still a small town? It was a, it's a small town, but and it seems even more simpler when I go back. I'm like, wow, this doesn't, you know, you see certain buildings, you're like, this doesn't seem as big as I remember it when I was growing up. Right. It, it, it seems a little smaller and, and, and more simpler. That's the most um, that comes to my mind right now when I think about going back home. Mm-hmm. And, John, I, I know, you know, because of uh, how crazy this industry is and whether you're a broadcaster or an actor or a singer the entertainment industry is really wacky um and it takes a lot of perseverance to to just keep pulling through what are what's one of the most challenging times in your life and and how did you continue to to work through it to continue to grow i think um when I first came out to California, that was really my most challenging um, period because you're new in town, you don't know anyone, and you know I started playing for churches, and you know that helped keep uh, some stability in my life and mm-hmm. having a place to play, and you start meeting people, but you know it was tough because you know that was the only time when I had an odd job, so to speak. I was a waiter, but even that only lasted maybe six months. <laughs> And um and I even quit one place. I said, no, I want to be in music. And they're like, okay, but you know, you you may need this job. We'll, we'll probably see you in a few months. You know, and they never did. Hmm. But um, you know, it's always been my faith in God, and I think it's been also my association with the church. Just you know, when you play for a church weekly, um, you can't help but just to um, let the messages permeate your heart or you're just around a good environment mm-hmm. and so I've always been around a lot of faithful people 
and it's been the prayers, and it's been um, my faith that just kept me through those difficult times until I found my stride in music, um, you know, and then I started doing this Star Surge and playing with Gladys Knight. And Star Surge, which you've won <laughs> twice, I believe. I just have to plug that in. Yeah, I, I can't, you know, was it twice? Yeah. Two or three times, I don't know. <laughs> multiple times. Star Search winner yeah. multiple times, we'll say. Yeah, it was it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> now, John, you've been in the music business for a long time, and I know you've seen a lot of changes as we've gone from analog music to now this digital world where uh, music is easily transferred uh, uh, from from uh, distributor to the uh to the end user, and now we've got iTunes and all of these different formats. How are you making it through the new digital music world, particularly when there's been so much uh, uh, focus on protecting intellectual property, particularly from the artist's perspective? Well, you know, it's been a pretty scary transition. Um, I know we used to go to the studios back in the analog days and when they had 24 tracks and everything, and when you finished your session, you took your tape and you went home, and that was with you. And you didn't worry about anybody having your music or anything. But now you do a session with someone, they have your information, and wherever you go, they have your information. It can leak out just so easily. And so, you know, it's been, you know, it's it's kind of a scary thing, but at the same time, music is also encoded. So um, when people use it, it can be tracked, and it's easily tracked through digital radio stations, and it's helped me now the technology because with it being tracked on stations like XM Radio and Pandora and Music Choice and stuff like that, um, it's easy to be um, tracked and monitored, and they're able to uh, recoup royalties for me. So in that sense, it's good that it's tracked, but it's, it's, kind of, it's bad in the sense that, yes, people can copy it and get free music if they want. Hmm. But what's helped is the streaming on the internet. Mm-hmm. Are are you seeing some of the the laws changing though, and and, and um, better enforcement um, among you know the um, among law enforcement to curb this uh, pirating? Well, I'm seeing more support for the actual musicians now, even with Congress backing up musicians, because there were a lot of digital stations on and. Um, places that didn't want to pay musicians the royalties or wanted to decrease the royalties. And I'm seeing a lot more support now for musicians. And it's it's virtually, you know, hard to stop the piracy because people can just go on YouTube and make MP3s from the videos. But at the same time, with the streaming on the Internet and the way that the music is um, encoded, that really helps musicians. And I do see Congress backing up and supporting musicians more and more. Mm-hmm. I, I want to switch uh, gears a little bit, uh, too. And, you know, I'd be remiss to um, fail to m- mention that you also do vocal coaching for aspiring singers. And I know your heart is to uh, encourage and mentor, uh, for lack of a better word, you know, emerging artists is... What is one of the most important pieces of advice you can offer to any aspiring artist listening to us today? You have to believe in yourself, and you also have to practice. Um, 
there's technology and music that makes your singing a lot easier. We all know that. And but you as an artist have to be able to be able to sing and not rely on technology to make you sound good. Mm-hmm. You need to sound good, so you need to practice. And, and talk a little bit about your forthcoming album, Star Eyes. That's when is that due out? And uh, is this um, the move to contemporary tracks paired with stringed instruments a um, a new direction for you? Is it kind of a you know a, a uh, are you kind of going back to your original roots? Well, it's a continuation of the Sound of Peace. It's out now, and it's. It actually may be a little more simpler than the sound of piece because yes, there are some strings, but there are also more tracks where it's just piano. Because a lot of people were asking me just for solo piano tracks, and so I was able to just sit down and create music and not rely on the heavy instrumentation or anything like that. Just solo piano. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know you tour uh, all over the world and. Um, you know, travel to us is very transformative. What is one of the most uh, transformative experiences you've you've had? Is there a destination that resonates with you, or is there somebody perhaps you met just at the airport that really touched you? Well, I, I tell you, I've been going to Japan for the last few years, and I've been going like twice a year, and the people there are just amazing to me in the culture. And one thing is they don't accept tips. And it's really strange because here in America, it's all about the tip. And if you don't tip somebody, you might end up on TMZ or something like that. But over there, you don't tip. And they just count it as an honor to be able to serve you. And um, I fall in love with the culture over there and the food and just the wonderful um, places that we've been able to tour. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I know our listening audience um, would be would like to learn more about you and perhaps find where you're performing next. Do you keep your schedule up on uh, your website, johnfluker.com? I haven't been that good at keeping my schedule <laughs> on my website, but you know, if you're on Facebook, that is probably the, the most reliable way to find out what I'm doing. Because I'll post, um, you know, updates on the Facebook. That's just much easier for me. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so if they can become a friend of mine, they can befriend me on Facebook. Well, John Fluker, award-winning pianist, composer, and vocalist, thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints. Thank you. I appreciate it. When we return, we'll explore Lansing's rich automobile history when we tour the R.E. Olds Museum. Ransom hated horses. He thought there must be a better way to get around than a horse, to clean up after a horse, and feed a horse, and then groom a horse, and thought that that a steam-powered or some type of a powered vehicle would, would, would be a lot better than a horse. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, my name is Jeannie. I am from Fiji. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Poaching is a major threat to our country's wildlife. 
I'm Tom Barry, and I'm an actor reaching out with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust, which works with private landowners to protect wildlife, preserve natural habitats, and create permanent sanctuaries. To learn more, call 800-729-SAVE or visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Thank you. Hello, my name is Minnie Johnson. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I really enjoy listening to the World Footprints radio show whenever I have an opportunity to do so. I've gained so much information from the show. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. One of the finest automobile collections anywhere is found in Lansing, Michigan. The R.E. Olds Transportation Museum in downtown Lansing honors Ransom Eli Olds, a man who reshaped the auto industry and Lansing skyline. Let's go on a tour of the museum and learn about R.E. Olds and his namesake car company, Oldsmobile, once built in Lansing with the museum's executive director, Bill Adcock. So you're here in a museum that got started about 31 years ago by a bunch of just uh, hobbyists in Lansing. And uh, this is an old Catabus garage that you're in right now. It's about 25,000 square feet. And they made a deal with the city that if they would lease them um, the, the, the facility for a dollar a year, then, then they would renovate it and make it into a museum. And they didn't have any cars, so they brought their own cars in here. I think there was a total of eight cars here initially. So anyway, that's how the whole thing got started. Now we have over 60 cars and probably 95% of those cars we own. Okay. Uh, just a few of them are on loan. There are some very special cars that are on loan. So what you're seeing right now is, this is family, the, the Arioles, Ransom Eli Oles, his family uh, artifacts. And he certainly lived here in town. He lived on the corner of Washington and Main Street, and that's the mansion that was there. Unfortunately, it got torn down when they put a new highway through town, so wouldn't you know? Yeah. So there's some of the remaining. We've got the furniture and piano from the piano room. We have, there's, it didn't have very many fireplaces in it for that big a mansion. It was all steam heat, so they didn't put many fireplaces. But that's one of the fireplaces that were there. We still have the grandfather clock built in 1904 for RE, and it runs. Um, and what they did is, is his father, Pliny Oles, they came from Indiana, he was a machinist. He had a machine shop, and they built these stationary engines. And these, everybody could use a stationary engine. And uh, this was this was gas-powered. It was steam, and you could run anywhere from a uh, washing machine to a lathe to a drill press. Just a, it's, it's it's whatever needed to be powered in a shop or at your home. Eventually, they, they started building. Uh, bigger piston engines, but again, mm-hmm. just in the engine business. That's what's turned the century, and that's what, which, well, this was 1800s. Um, and it was the, combust- the, the internal combustion engine, uh, boy, that was used for everything. You could power big shops, and by the time they, you know, got done with their engine run, they were building the engines in the size of a car here, mm-hmm. 18 horsepower, this great big monster, but it would run factories like this. They would run them off a belt. Uh, up and run run through pulleys and, and and gears and whatnot, and it would run the whole whole factory. They used that money so they could build automobiles. Okay. Uh, Ransom hated horses. He thought there was must be a better way to get around than a horse, to clean up after a horse, and a feed a horse, and a groom a horse, and thought that uh, that a steam powered or some type of a powered vehicle would 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 
be a lot better than a horse. So they experimented in 1886 and built this three-wheel steam car here. It didn't work very well, but it was, it was the start. Um, built another one after that. It was a four-wheel with, with more horsepower. It was, it was a better car, but it, it wasn't uh, what he ended, ended up doing. He ended up doing a gasoline car. And this, it was really a, a motor wagon or, or a carriage, if you will, that they put tiller steering on, a single en- single cylinder engine in, and that was the first car. There's, mm-hmm. He built four of those. Mm-hmm. Um, three of them are gone just through history, and the one and remaining one is, this is a re- replica, but the one remaining one is around the corner here under glass. Okay. He gave it to the Smithsonian, and we have it on loan uh, on three-year periods. So two years later, he built a series of four electric cars, and this is the only electric car surviving. This is all uh, patent leather. Wow. <laughs> this is the fenders Amazing. the same way, uh, and it had a, a regular lead-acid batteries, and lead-acid batteries were built and invented by the French in the 1800s, and these were popular back at the turn of the century. I mean... There was a lot of cars. I think at least uh, 30% of the cars were probably electric back then. So with all this uh, knowledge behind them, they said, well, let's build a car company. So again, they took a lot of that uh, money that was was, um, in the engine business over here, and they parlayed that into, you know, a car company. Mm. So they they got investors together. The biggest investors was uh, Smith. His name is uh, Sam Smith. He was from Detroit. Originally, he had copper mines and, and timber timbers okay. up in the UP. He lived in Detroit, and he pretty much bankrolled the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually sold, I believe they sold that um, the Olds Engine Works to uh, the Smiths. And, and then that was money for them to, to invest in the company as well. And so the first car they built, they had several, um, several models of cars that they were going to produce. And about three of these were electrics and three of them were gas-powered. They settled on the gas-powered cars, and just shortly before they were going to go into production, they, 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 started, they settled on the curved-dash holes. That factory burned to the ground. Hmm. Um, a lot of the movers and shakers in Lansing said, Ari, why don't you rebuild your factory in Lansing? We'll give you the fairgrounds out here. It's 53 acres, and you've got room right. to expand. And because uh, we've got a great workforce here, so they did. Hmm. They brought the whole company back to Lansing, and there's the big Cadillac plant that's there now. That was the original Olds Motor Works okay. factory, um, and they they built that in Lansing. They, they, at the same time, they rebuilt the factory in Detroit, so they had both factories going in 1901, uh, primarily just building this uh, curved dash Olds. Hmm. And by 1903, they were the largest automobile company in the nation. I think I think they built 600 the first year, a thousand the second year, maybe 3,000 the third year. So it was a very popular car. It weighed 650 pounds, and it cost 650 dollars to buy, which is not too cheap back then. But it, mm-hmm. it was a very reliable piece of transportation. Uh, you know, easy to drive. Men, women, any anybody could drive. It was a very simple car to drive. Simple car to maintain. Um, so now comes to, uh, 1903, and the Smiths want to build big cars because big cars, big profit. Mm-hmm. Ari was totally against that. He said, no, this is the car we build. We'll build them for the masses. 
um, and we can produce a lot of them. As a matter of fact, RE produced the first uh, assembly, assembly line. This He built a progressive assembly line. Uh, I know that um, Henry Ford gets credit for building the assembly line, but that wasn't until 1907 or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, RE, would, would, he would build things um, in groups, and he'd have bins of parts, and, and, and you'd Instead of uh, having a chassis here, then you put a motor on it, then you put the wheels, then you put the fenders, then you put the seats. When you're done, you take it off the jack stands and roll it out. That's not the way um, RE was going to do that. So everything had a system, and it was built, and parts were carried to each station. Mm. And therefore, he could build, you know, 60 cars in a, in a, well, he could build 600 cars in a year when somebody else could build 30 or 40 in a year. So his mass production techniques really was the key to success on why he could build so many. Uh, Henry came along and said, that's cool, but I can put a conveyor under it and I can bring everything to the people. And he did, and and it was even a bigger success. Mm. So in 1907, he was out selling everybody probably in the the world at that point. Mm. So back in 1903, they started having their disagreements. Um, with what they wanted to build, and Ari, uh, if, you know, the money was controlled by the Smiths, and so Ari promptly left at the end of 1903. Um, all his buddies again said, "Nope, you've got to start a car company. You're a genius behind this," and uh, so they did. They organized a new car company, not with the Olds name. He had to, he couldn't use that anymore. He did it with his initials, Ransom Eli Olds. It was the real motor car company. And it was incorporated, I believe, in 1904. That new car company and one of its vehicles would later become the inspiration for one of the most popular bands in American rock music. You remember the name REO Speedwagon, Mm -hmm. the group? Yes. Well, the drummer (laughs) for the REO Speedwagon was quite a historian, and he liked liked the story of REO, and he liked that name. And so he chose REO Speedwagon, Mm. the name of the truck for the band. Wow. How's that? That... Who knew? Who knew? (laughs) And they called them the speed wagons because they were fast. They were fast trucks Mm. back in the day, and you could could load them up and go fast with them, and so that's why Mm. they call them speed wagons. Even though Oldsmobile has been relegated to the history books, car manufacturing in Lansing has not, as the city continues its proud tradition, making cars for General Motors, now Cadillacs instead of Oldsmobiles. 2004 was the last Oldsmobile, and then that was that was the end of actually General Motors in this town when they built that last. When it was a Laro, I think they had a Laro mm-hmm. production line going here. Uh, they didn't have any more product that was going to be built in Lansing, so literally they were going to just shut those factories down and not build any more product in Lansing. And it wasn't if it wasn't for the mayor at the time, it was um, David Hollister. He got together a, a blue ribbon panel together. He got labor and management. He got government involved. He got Michigan State University involved. All these people partnered in synergy to say, we need to build another plant in Lansing. We have a great workforce. And so they were able to give them some tax breaks, and we ended up getting a brand-new Cadillac plant, state-of-the-art, along with another stamping plant. And uh, two years later, 
another facility out in Delta Township. And those two factories are their flagship factories in the United States right now. This R.E. Olds Museum in Lansing is an extraordinary place. And, Bill, we thank you for being with us today on World Footprints and for this fantastic tour. And we encourage everyone to come to Lansing and visit the museum. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you want more of World Footprints Radio, including our World Footprints Travel Report, giving you the latest breaking travel news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved.